want to bring to you one installment of a series of messages that I'm creating um, for a couple of different reasons. One is that I think that often um, from the time that we're children, we hear of Bible stories that become so well known to us that we um, often miss uh, their power or some aspects of, um, that, are with, that, that are sprinkled within the story. Um, or we might miss the primary thrust of the story because of over-familiarity. So I'm wanting to go back and revisit some of these really famous stories, David and Goliath, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel is the one that I'm working on right now. Um, the one we're going to look at tonight is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Um, and you can uh, turn in your uh, Bibles or you can scroll down or boot up your Bible, however you happen to have it with you uh, tonight. And if you want to take notes, feel free to do that. Now, here are some of the reasons why I'm putting this series together. Uh, one reason is because um, in the body of Christ, we have um, kind of taken attitudes toward the Bible. Um, uh, we're understanding the Bible as being something that's a whole lot different than what it actually is. Um, it's not a book of bedtime stories. Um, it isn't a book of promises. It contains promises, but that's not the primary purpose. It's telling us the story of God's dealing with human beings. And as dealing with human beings, he is invading on a regular basis time and space, and he's leaving his footprints behind. Um, the Bible is not a book of codes. It's not a book of mysteries. It's not a book of spells. Um, it's not a book of hidden knowledge for people only for people who like go to Bible college or seminary. It is God's intentional self-revelation, and he has constantly left behind a, um, a, a ton of, a plethora of indications or proofs or prompts um, that validate and verify the reality of his word. Now, and, and so part of looking at the Bible this way then is an intentional pushback against people like Richard Dawkins, who has um, kind of made uh, uh, atheism into an evangelical religion, or of Bart Ehrman, who has basically cast aspersions on the entire Bible and its reliability, textual reliability, historical reliability, or against multiculturalism that basically has told us, look, there are lots of different religious expressions uh, throughout the world, they're all legitimate, they're all valid, and they're all flatlined. All of them are just as good and, and, not, and no worse than any of the other ones. It's basically the gospel according to Oprah, which is um, there can't be one, just one way that leads to God. There must be literally thousands of ways that lead to, to God, all of them equally legitimate. Um, or um, the, um, the, uh, the, go the gospel of s sort of like multiculturalism, or um, pluralism that says, uh, look, you don't have any right to claim any special um, revelation of the truth or possession of the truth. Um, everybody's got a spark of God inside of them. Um, everyone has um, bits and pieces of the truth. And what we just need to do is kind of accept everybody's version of the truth and um, put it all together and make a great big wonderful alphabet soup out of it. And that ends up being kind of, I, I don't know, um, uh, cultural salvation. If we can all just come together, agree to get along, 
all, everybody believed the same thing. The Bible is really pushing back against all of those things. The Oprahs, the Richard Dawkins, the Bart Ehrmans, the multiculturalists um, uh, of our world. And it's proclaiming the one true God and the one truth. And so um, what I'm, in a way, trying to do is to pull the Bible back out of this idea that it's all legend, it's all myth, it's all make-believe, it's all once upon a time, it's always um, um, once upon a time in a land far, far away. And to really drill down on specific Bible passages, most of which have come under fire in recent days as being, these are just literary creations. These are just made-up stories that are intending to, um, to moralize. Uh, to, to tell us, uh, to, to encourage us to be good people um, instead of these are specific instances in which God invaded time and space. There's ample evidence through these stories, I'll, I'd prefer to call them historical reports, um, that validate their historical veracity, reliability, authenticity, legitimacy. Does that make sense? All right, so... Let's then go to 1 Samuel chapter 17 and look at the first couple of verses. This, by the way, is the stuff we normally skip over uh, because the words are hard to pronounce. The places are in locations that are far, far away that we're not familiar with, and so they can't really matter, right? The problem is this. Paul says in 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so if Paul says all Scripture, that means the hard-to-pronounce location names and the hard-to-pronounce people's names. It means the physical descriptions of things that are of, of places where events happen. All Scripture basically means all Scripture. We're okay with that, right? All right. So, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Note that the word their armies is plural. Did you notice that? We would say the United States Army gathered together for battle. So, what would there be the reason why a specific people group, cultural group, um, ethnic group, we would call it, why would they have multiple armies? It's because the Philistines are from Greece. They're Mycenaean people. And we know from our studies in high school and Western Civ and college, that kind of thing, that the Greek culture had uh, created a form of government that was basically city-state government. Greece has Athens and Sparta and Corinth and the like, right? So they're city-state governed. Each one of the five major Philistine cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, um, uh, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron, the five major Philistine cities all had a king over that city. He's called king in the Bible. Each one of these major cities had a standing army of its own. And so the Philistines gathered their armies together. This is something we can verify by language and by comparison with other um, literature that we have uh, available to us still today. They were gathered together at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they camped, encamped in the valley of Elah. 
and they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. Now, if this is legend, if this is story, if this is myth, then the question comes, why all the detail? And then the next question comes when we look at it in, uh, in real time. We can still see these places today. Why would a writer um, envision a story, make up a story, and then have it conform to everything that we can check um, geographically, archaeologically, topographically, and that kind of thing. So let's just take a look at some of the realities that we have uh, before us that we can check. Um, right below this, uh, where this picture was taken is the city of Azekah. I take my groups there every time I go. I was there four times this past year with groups on top of Azekah. Uh, Soko is this little mound right here. It has not been excavated. It has been topically surveyed and identified as Soko by Israelis, many of whom are not even um, believers in the historicity of the Bible. So you have this axis, Azeka and Soko, cutting the Ela Valley in half. Um, many people will place the um, Israelite army either on this ridge or that ridge. I think for reasons that will come clear a little bit later, that they're actually back guarding these entrances into the Judean hill country in the background. Because this is where places like Hebron and Bethlehem are. There are locations where you have a, um, a Israelite inhabitation. Um, this then is the disputed zone. The Philistines are behind us on the coast, the Mediterranean coast. The Israelites are primarily in the hill country. And then these areas that have, have these wide and easily accessible, notice that's a modern Israeli road right there, running right up through the middle of the Ela Valley. So let's go back to our verse real quick. Between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. I think that this phrase right here, it means in Hebrew, zero blood, um, is a name that was probably given to this area, this uh, this region of the Ela Valley after the battle had taken place. Because when you hear the story of the battle, the Israelites lost no soldiers on that day. The slain of the Philistines lay from here all the way to the gates of Gath and Ekron, but no Israelite loss of blood took place on this day. And someone, somewhere then, gave this area the name No Blood. No, no Israelite body count on that day. And then we have the reference to the Valley of Elah. The va Elah is a type of tree that is in the oak family and um, still grows pretty prolifically uh, in this area. So uh, here's a, a close-up of Azekah. Now you're looking back underneath the camera lens uh, of uh, this particular picture. Right here is Azekah. So now you're down in the valley, say in the middle of that field, and you're looking back toward where we just took the picture from, Azekah. It's a real place. It's not a make-believe place. It's, uh, it's in the narrative for a very specific reason. It's cueing ancient Israelites in to the fact that this story is reality, not make-believe. Here's the city of Soko from that other location that I, I, I want to mention in just a moment. Um, Soko, it's right here. This pile of rocks here is a part of a fortification system. Notice the uh, Ela Valley 
uh, in between this location and Soko, and notice the Judean hill country back in the background. Okay, this location, Kerbet Keafa, is the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about just briefly. Um, it says in First uh, Samuel seventeen fifty two. I know that we've jumped all the way to the end of the story, but I'm not dealing with this story in a verse by verse kind of way. We're extracting points of interest that help us to establish the legitimacy of the story as a historical report. Everybody getting that? Okay. So it says that the men of Israel get to the we're fast forward to the very end where the where the David and Goliath event has already taken place. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. There's a reason why that's in there. It's the closest Philistine city you could get to. And when you're in in route, when when you are in uh, defeat and you're retreating um, in an unorderly manner, the best thing that you can do is get to the quickest, the closest place of safety. There's there's an old saying of of the Navy... um, uh, uh, the closest port in the time of a storm, right? Anywhere that's the closest port in time of a storm. So that's what these guys are doing. And the slain of the Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim. That's another Hebrew word and hard to pronounce and don't know exactly what it means, but we're going to. Even to Gath and Ekron, the closest Philistine cities, the ones that were inland, not on the coast, but inland, um, so they're kind of forward positions pointing toward Israelite uh, uh, occupation. Sha'arim, it, uh, it refers to this city that has been recently discovered and identified and is currently being ex- excavated um, uh, by um, Josef Finkelstein. And uh, it ha- the reason for its name comes from this interesting gate formation here. Instead of having one part of the city gate, it has a double gate like this, and that would serve as, in battle, or in wartime, as a double fortification, because the gate of a city is its most vulnerable place, right? And then another reason why you have these inner, these inner chambers is this is where record-keeping took place, this is where marriages were contracted, where um, divorces took place, where deals were made and contracts were signed. And you see this in passages like in Ruth. They went to the city gate of Bethlehem and there contracted this Leverite marriage between uh, Boaz and Ruth. You see it in uh, Absalom, where Absalom went down and sat in the city gate and began to judge Israel. And all Israel were coming to, uh, to them. Um, so multiple places you can do your own study on city gates in the Bible, but this is a really cool thing because the archaeologists have found this double-chambered gate, which is the reason for that uh, Hebrew, uh, the A-I-M means two of them, or a couple, or a pair. Sha'arim, it means the double-gated city. Quite interesting. We would think there's a gate on one side and a gate on the other. But uh, archaeologists have demonstrated that this is a kind of a two-gate system, one right behind the other. All right. Um, at uh, Kerbet Keafa is the Arabic name for this location. Sha'arim is the Hebrew uh, name for the location. The oldest Hebrew text ever discovered was found. 
and it dates to the time of King David. So David recognized in his lifetime the really strategic military importance of this location, came back once he was made king and built a gigantic city there with a double gate. And we know that this was an Israelite city, not a a Philistine city, because the inscription there is in Hebrew, not not in the Philistine language. We do have material from the Philistine language, and we'll look at that in just a moment. It says the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while, the, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and the valley lie between them. This makes perfect sense in terms of military strategy because um, if you are encamped down in a, in, a, in a low location and someone comes at you from above, then they have the high ground. They have the strategic um, advantage over you. Why would this be? Well, today it has to do with uh, the trajectory of artillery and that kind of thing. Well, they had artillery back then as well. They called them bows and arrows and slingshots. They had, they had their version of artillery as well. And it was important to be up above. So, whenever they were going to encamp, these uh, ancient armies would look for a place that was defensible just in case they got surprised, surrounded, or whatever. More defensible is high ground rather than low ground. So each of these armies are up on high ground on these bluffs above the Ayla Valley. And then when it comes time for a pitched battle, you know, with um, uh, uh, companies that are um, organized and under a commander and maneuvering and that kind of thing, well, then level ground is what is desirable, even up into the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Uh, you have this desire for a flat uh, ground for, um, uh, for uh, pitched battles to take place. What would that be? The Valley of Ayla. The Ayla Valley. Nice, broad, flat valley that both of the armies could come bring down from the highlands, stage up on flat ground, and then go at each other. Uh, again, you have the details of the story setting the tone for the rest of the story that says, this is reality. This is stuff that really happened. This is the way that, that, that warfare uh, was conducted, not just in ancient times, but also on up into modern times as well. So, on the Ayla Valley, you have then this axis of Philistine occupation. They'd come up from, down in here, um, Ekron and Gath, and they're all, all the way into the Ayla Valley, crossing the valley, and they're, uh, they're camped on uh, 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 this high ground, that high ground, and you have the Ayla Valley in between. This is the beginning of the Judean hill country right here, and my thought is then that the, uh, the army under Saul was trying to protect this access route, that access route, and this access route into the hill country. Where would they be then? They would be on these ridges, not over here, on the side that is what has been uh, traditionally suggested um, by um, scholars. Again, a picture of the the valley as a whole. Uh, Philistines here, Philistines here. Eventually David builds a fortress here, but it's not there at the time that he was a young man fighting Goliath. This was built after David became king. Israelites probably up in here trying to protect these three access points into uh, the hill country. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath. So, unusual name, 
because it's not a Semitic name. You know, Hebrew, Israelite language is in the Semitic uh, language group. That would include um, uh, Canaanite. It would include Aramaic. It today includes Arabic. It includes Hebrew. Uh, this is not any of those. This is a to- totally, not just a different language, it's a different language group. It's Indo-Aryan, which is more like the Romance languages, more like English and Spanish and Italian and French, uh, Greek, uh, Latin, than it is um, a Middle Eastern language. And then he is from Gath. Specific location, specific individual, unusual name, This is not the kind of things that people just make up. Whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit is this to here, and a span is this to here. Just very simply. Um, Now, uh, Gath is really close to this battleground. We are again at Azekah. Remember that was our at our start. That was our anchor point, our starting point when we looked across the Ela Valley. Now we're looking back toward the sea coast, the Mediterranean is out here. This is Gath right here. You can see Gath from Azekah. He's not very far from home. He wants, though, to expand the Philistines' influence and their control over more and more territory. Well, you can't conquer sea. You can't go west. So what do you do as a Philistine? You go east into this area of Soko, Azekah, uh, Ephes, Damim, and uh, Sha'arim, and further inland into the Judean hill country. So to expand their land mass, they have to conquer land going eastward. Um, So coming right past, right up through the Ela Valley, past Azekah, where we are, looking across at Gath, and on up to Soko, and that's where their battle line is drawn. Here's a close-up of uh, uh, Gath. A friend of mine whose name is Dr. Aaron Meyer, he's an Israeli, he is excavating Gath currently. Um, interestingly, he has found a piece of a very large bowl. I like to think maybe cereal bowl, but that's just because I eat cereal for breakfast. On this bowl, and this is always important, this is, this is the find of a lifetime for an archaeologist when you find some ancient material with writing on it. That writing, not in Hebrew, is the name Goliath from Gath. What are the chances, huh? I mean, what are, the, what are the chances that we would be holding in our hands a piece of pottery that was, that's broken but has writing on it identifying, presumably, its owner as Goliath? And Goliath is an unusual name. We don't have that name uh, uh, given to anybody else in ancient time other than this individual. Now, are we holding Goliath's cereal bowl? Are we looking at Goliath's cereal bowl, uh, oatmeal bowl? I, we, I can't say that for sure. I can say that it's an unusual name um, in an unusual language, and it was found in the city where he lived, Gath, Telesophy. Another thing that, we've, that Dr. Meyer found um, in excavating Gath is a Philistine temple complex. And you can see uh, part of the foundation here. And right at the beginning and in the middle are two gigantic foundation stones upon which set large pillars with capitals on top of those that held up the roof. 
the same thing that we find at another um, location that has been excavated near Tel Aviv uh, that is called Tel Kassil. And nobody really knows what the name, the biblical name for that city was, but we know there was a city there because there's a city there. And uh, there's a, we know it was a Philistine city because of the pottery, uh, because of some of the other material culture, and because it corresponds to uh, this. It's, this is a typical Philistine temple complex. Interestingly, when we were here, I had, uh, had students of mine go down into this excavation pit. I had one big guy stand right here, another big guy stand right here, and then an average guy stand in between. And he was able to, with his arms flexed about like this, touch both of those guys standing on those pillar bases. Um, and that's what uh, the situation that we get with Judges chapter 16, the story of Samson, how he pushed over the two pillars and the whole temple complex. The roof caved in, domino effect, the whole temple caved in, killed thousands of people at one time. That's not make-believe and it's not exaggeration. It is physical, architectural reality that has been verified in at least two places that I know of, Tel Kassil and Gath, of Philistine temples. And so the one described in Judges chapter 16, absolutely legit, totally legit. Um, looks like it might be a, a, maybe a metaphor. Looks like it might be hyperbole or exaggeration, but um, actually fits reality quite well based on uh, archaeological evidence. Back to Goliath. Goliath had bronze greaves, bronze greaves. Now, the word greaves, it just means shin guards, okay? That's real easy to get beyond, except this. This is the only place in the whole Hebrew Bible where that word shows up. It's so unusual that it's not even a Hebrew word. It's a loan word. You know, like we use words like ballet and buffet, and those aren't English words. Those are French words. I apologize for my dirty language. Um, so, uh, bronze greaves. In the mind of the biblical author, this sticks out as being two unusualities. One Israelite soldiers were not wearing greaves at all. We don't hear about Israelites, so we hear about shields and spears and swords and all kinds of slings and stuff like that that they were armed with, but not with the defensive weaponry of, of, of greaves. They weren't wearing them, evidently. There were some ancient Near Eastern warriors that wore them. Assyrian warriors, some of them wore greaves, but they weren't bronze. They were made of bone and leather and wood, uh, kind of all strapped together. Bronze greaves we only know of from one location. Guess where it was? Dendra, Greece. Now, where, where did we say the Philistines were from? I've forgotten because of my advanced state of age. Um, th yeah, the Philistines were from Greece. So the Philistines brought with them a certain ability in metallurgy that was way beyond what was going on in what we call Israel today. It was Canaan that they saw. They're coming from the west at about the same time that Joshua is bringing the people of Israel in from the east through Jericho and up into the Judean hill country. They're coming from the Mediterranean because they're seafaring peoples and the Israelites are coming in off of the desert um, because they are, at this point, nomadic people. So um, the Israelites are at a decided disadvantage um, 
I, by the way, wrote the article on, in Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible on Greaves and also down at the bottom in the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis on um, ancient uh, weaponry and um, uh, uh, both defensive and offensive weaponry. Uh, so this stuff is thoroughly researched and totally legitimate based on scholarship. Um, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, to curve the information this is simply the reality, and the reason I know it is because I've done the, the research on it, and you're welcome to check my research, and that's the reason I put the page numbers and the volume numbers and all that, because I refuse to do what is so often done in Christianity, and that's to stand up here and pull rabbits out of hats. That's not what we're about. That's not what true. That you never get the truth and reality via that 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 approach secret hidden knowledge that only i have and i'm going to dole it out to you you know one fish per day so you got to keep coming back to me to get the good stuff and we won't be doing that and pastor steve doesn't do it and he doesn't have people come in that that take that approach to um the bible and spirituality anyway in the bible the bible is telling us that there's this gigantic technological disparity between the ancient Israelite and the ancient Philistine. It says, for example, in 1 Samuel 13, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. And the Israelites had the numerical advantage. There's no doubt about it. There were way more Israelites coming off the desert than there were sea peoples coming in off the Mediterranean Sea. So the only way that they could level the playing field is to engage in an, in an arms embargo, uh, an ancient arms embargo against the Israelites. And so some kind of way, these five Philistine cities that brought this technological superiority in terms of metallurgy to the land of Canaan, uh, which would become eventually called the land of Israel, um, came to an agreement. We will not export any of our arms or our, our, uh, our, our information, our, our technology to these people because if they get it, then we're doomed. We're done because they already outnumber us. Here's another passage, same chapter. Um, On the day of battle, neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. They were only found with Saul and his son Jonathan. Of all the ancient Israelites that were fighting in this pre-Davidic army that was under King Saul, they only had two swords. I don't know what the rest of them were fighting with, presumably slingshots and, and um, sharpened sticks and whatever. But they weren't fighting with, uh, uh, with bronze, with iron, or with steel because they didn't have that technology yet. This story we're reading about in 1 Samuel 17 is telling us about that technological disparity. It describes in detail all the armaments, both uh, both offensive and defensive, of Goliath. And then it tells us that David went out to him with a sling and a stick and five smooth stones. That's what we've got. That's the reality that we have based on archaeology and based on the texts. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said, Why do you come out and draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine? I don't know if you ever noticed this before, but he, sa- he doesn't say, Am I not a Philistine? He says, I am the man. I am awesome in this place. You want to get at the Philistines? You've got to go through me. The road runs through me. 
So he's saying, I am the biggest and the baddest and the best of the best. If you like Clint Eastwood, I'm the good and the bad and the ugly all rolled into one. It all runs through me. He's the point man. I mean, he is, he is, even in his words, he's positioning himself as, I am the champion. I'm like the, I'm like the um, Olympic champion of all of the Philistines. So I represent them. And aren't you the servants of Saul? Notice he speaks to them in the plural. It's all y'all against me. I am so bad to the bone. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll become servants of yours. But if, you, if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Does this sound weird to you? It wasn't weird in the ancient world. We hear of... There's legitimate scholarly work that has been done on the concept of representative combat. You see, in the ancient world, they weren't suffering from what we suffer from today, which is population explosion. They didn't have 7 billion people on their planet. People were few in number. And kings and generals and stuff, if they found a way where they could avoid the loss of a significant portion of their fighting force, they were going to do that. And so we have in ancient literature... DeVoe wrote on it, Bergen wrote on it, a student of mine who did a master's degree at MSU. Her name is uh, Deborah Van Ness, N-E-S, Van space N-E-S-S, has also written on this. And um, representative combat is very well known and used regularly in the ancient Near East. Here's the interesting thing about representative combat. It's the same way the Bible describes it in terms of the choosing of a champion, one from each side, and then this promise, will be your servants, will be your servants. But then the battle takes place, and one inevitably beats the other. And in no place in all of these other instances of representative combat do we find another army and a people group following through on their promise and laying their arms down and saying, okay, we, we said we'd serve you, so here we are. What do you need us to do today? Everybody breaks their promise. The Philistines did as well here. They, their representative lost, but they didn't follow through on the promise to become the servants. So this falls right in line with the rest of the reports that we have, both other reports from the Bible. Take a look, for example, at the representative combat going on in 2 Samuel chapter 2. So the Bible knows about this concept, this practice of representative combat, and it also evidently knows that it, that this battle went the same way that all the other ones in ancient history did. No one ever keeps their word. Kind of reminds me of the United States today, but that's another issue for another time. Uh, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. You know, Jesse and his sons, and David is the youngest of the sons. What about this David, though? Because... Um, scholarship has told us for about the last hundred years that David didn't really exist as a historical personage. I don't know if you read about this, but read from the middle of the road to the left of scholarship, and they'll say, David's like a King Arthur figure. He's sort of a Robin Hood figure. He might be a composite of a whole bunch of different people, but there was no real historical David. Um, and uh, even questions, especially from Palestinian scholars, um, on uh, the... Um, inhabitation of the ancient town of Bethlehem by Israelites. So we've got to look at this stuff, right? 
Interestingly, in the early 1990s, Avraham Biran, a Jewish excavator at Tel Dan, by the way, a professor at the Hebrew Union College where I did my doctoral work, was um, excavating at... um, Can somebody get me a power supply? Was excavating at Tel Dan in the far north of Israel. And uh, at Tel Dan, a... um, a piece of, um, of a victory monument set up by an Aramean king, not an Israelite king, an Aramean king was discovered. Here he's describing in this victory monument a, um, a battle that took place where he killed the king of Judah and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel when the two were split after Solomon's death. He says that in, in this little passage we've got circled, he says he did battle with a certain king from the house of David. This is 9th century B.C. in Aramaic from a pagan king. This is not some Israelite king who's trying to support um, biblical truthfulness or reality or accuracy. This is an Aramean king, an enemy of Israel, 9th century B.C., less than a hundred years downstream from King David himself. And he's talking about doing battle with a, with a king from the house of David. There the word house bite means dynasty, the dynasty of David. As for, um, here's the text of the inscription, the house of, uh, I, I killed Ahaziahu, son of, uh, son of Joram, the king of the house of David. Um, And uh, just as a, by the way, the Bethlehem seal that was discovered in April two years ago um, by Dr. Gabriel Barkai and um, uh, uh, Dr. Eli Shukron, uh, both um, Israeli archaeologists working in Jerusalem in the city of David dig, uh, this seal, you know, like uh, we put a stamp on an envelope, or we lick the, in, the back, that's probably a better analogy, lick the back and, and seal it closed. Seals were used um, to roll up a piece of paper, you put a, a piece of, uh, a little bit of clay on there, and then you mash your seal on it, and that was supposed to keep that intact until it was opened by the receiver. Okay? This uh, particular seal has um, Bethlehem written on it. And, that mean, and it's in Hebrew. That means Israelites are inhabiting Bethlehem at the time that this was, um, was created, which is 7th, 8th century B.C. So this is just a couple of hundred years from, uh, from King David. Um, Jesse says to David, I want you to go and look into the welfare of your brothers, and I want you to bring back news of them. Um, Jesse has a vested interest in knowing what's going on down in the Ela Valley. Even though he's all the way up in the Judean hill country in Bethlehem, he's the head of a clan. And he has responsibility, and that is the protection of all of the men, women, children, flocks and herds, uh, property and the like, um, that is under his uh, responsibility as the head of the clan. So uh, with that, I would like to... um, take a look at uh, some satellite technology with you that is available uh, at this point. And this is sort of like uh, Google Earth, but uh, Bible study version. 
Here we have one of the, one of the ancient um, uh, Philistine cities called Ashkelon. It's one of their port cities. Another port city is Ashdod. You notice these sand dunes right here? That's the only sand you'll see in all of Israel. And it's right where it's supposed to be, on the coast. Do you see the rest of it? It's green, it's lush, it's got all kinds of vegetation. That's because the Bible is true when it speaks of uh, Eretz, Zav, Zavat, Chalavu, Davash, a land flowing with milk and honey. It is Hollyweird that has messed things up, eh, 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 giving us the idea that Israel is some desert wasteland. You know, you've got Lawrence of Arabia trekking through on camelback, sand dune after sand dune. Could I remind you, that's Lawrence of Arabia, not Lawrence of Israel. This is still what the, the way the Bible describes it, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. So here we have the Mediterranean. Here we have the Dead Sea. You see that in the background? All right, so let's follow the blue road and see where it goes. Follow along with me. The blue road going from Ashdod and Ashkelon, you eventually come to Gath, right? All right? Now let's go down just a little bit. If you continue to go eastward, you know, that's toward the desert, the Dead Sea, toward the Judean hill country, you go, you get to Gath, you keep going straight, and the first city that you come to is Azaka. And the next city you come to is Soko. Excuse me, but does that, is that a make-sense itinerary? Did we just catch the Bible being right? I think we did. Okay, so then watch what, watch what continues to happen. Let's just pretend that David lost. You know, like he missed, and Goliath got him, and the rest is not history. And the Israelites lost that battle, and the Philistines continued their march each eastward. What is their ultimate goal? It is certainly not Azekah and Soko. It's also not the Ela Valley. Watch what happens. Put this back in motion. Continue to follow the blue road. See, there's another road that goes up to Hebron. There's another road that goes up to Gibeon. But watch this blue road. If you keep on going up there to the blue road, see this little eye right here? That's Jerusalem, but it's not Jerusalem yet. David conquers Jerusalem. It's called Jebus. It's not even an Israelite city, so that's not the concern of these, um, uh, of these uh, Philistines. Keep going up this blue road. Pretend that Jerusalem right here is not there. Now we're up in the Judean hill country. The first city, you see you haven't seen any fortresses along the way to protect the rest of this road. And the first city that you come to is Bethlehem. That's the ultimate goal. And if you get up to Bethlehem, then you can go left and you can run the rest of the northern part of the hill country. You can go to the right and run the whole hill country all the way down to Hebron. You've got the whole country. You win this one battle. So this is what Ayla is all about. This is what 1 Samuel 17 is all about. This is what David and Goliath is all about. This is what Jesse wants to know. How's the battle going? Do I evacuate my whole clan out into the wilderness and look for places to hide? Are we going to have to leave everything we know, love, and own, or can we stay put? That's why he's sending David down to the battle line. There is a legitimate military strategic purpose in this 
David going back and forth on a regular basis, giving news of what, how the battle is faring with these Philistines to the people up in the hill country, including his dad. That's a make-sense kind of thing. That's not a make-believe kind of thing. All right. Get rid of this. And back to uh, our study. So it's really the hero of Bethlehem versus the hero of Gath. These two opposing Israelite city in the hill country, Gath, the Philistine city on the plain. David goes and he picks up five smooth stones from the brook. There is a creek running down through the Ayla Valley, and as well as that road. Here it is um, in the rainy season with water in it. And there are always people, uh, almost every time you drive through there with a bus, there's a bus of um, tourists or students or whatever stopped, and they bailed off over into the brook Ayla, and they're looking for themselves for five smooth stones because they want to be able to teach this when they get back home. That's what these guys are doing. They're not just waiting for the fun of it. Um, Here's another perspective, and this is that gigantic bridge that goes over uh, the uh, brook Ayla. And I take my students there, too. Um, They inevitably ask me, do you think the Israelis are going to mind? I said, look, I think they got plenty of rocks. I don't think they're going to miss a one. (laughs) Every year, more washed down from the hill country. So we're all good with that. Here's a a picture of a cache of... um, sling stones that were found by archaeologists um, in, a, um, uh, in an excavation of a city that was besieged. Um, sling stones were used by the slingers and was eventually destroyed. Here you can see the size of the average sling pocket, then with the ropes tied on either side where you can get a lot of trajectory. In ancient Near Eastern pictures on the walls of palaces and graves, tombs, Um, the slingers are always positioned behind the archers. Why would that be? They have have a greater distance and a greater accuracy at distance. So they're able then to shoot beyond the the extent of archers. Uh, Here's a picture that I just pulled off of the Internet to demonstrate to you two different types of infantry. Goliath, with all of his um, metal weaponry, offensive and defensive, would be classified as heavy infantry. They were um, geared for hand-to-hand close combat. David would be classified as light infantry, and the focus of light infantry is mobility, maneuverability, speed, quickness, agility, uh, the ability to outflank an opponent. And so intentionally, they were poorly armed in terms of defensive weaponry. In my opinion, Goliath didn't have a chance when he left camp that morning uh, because David has not only the ability to shoot from a distance, and Goliath doesn't, but he also has the maneuverability. You'll find that it says that uh, in this passage that uh, David approached the Philistine. David's taking the offensive on this. One might think he's hanging back, he's hoping he runs out of spears and javelins to throw or or whatever. No, David's taking this battle to the enemy. But here's the really cool thing, and this is where we get to application um, with respect to David. David tells this guy before he kills him, he says, you come to me with a sword 
and in different English translations, I'm using the NASB. Um, it doesn't have the word with there, but I went ahead and put it in because the Hebrew does have it. The original language that the Bible was written in has the word with. So I went ahead and stuck it in. I hope you don't mind. In fact, I even um, wrote it in capital letters and, and, and I bolded it because the, and there's a purpose. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. All in the Hebrew, it's there each one of those three times. But I come to you and then the word is the same as here, here, and here. The same Hebrew word. It's a simple word, buh. I think David is saying, you're coming to me with all this weaponry. Guess what my weaponry is? It's not the stick. It's not the sling. It's not any of the five stones. I come out to you, my offensive weaponry, my defensive weaponry is the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. And I think what he's just simply saying is you don't even have a chance because even if some kind of way my, my sling stone was off a, a, a little bit to the right or to the left, this, this God that, that's coming out with me in battle, who is my offensive and defensive weaponry, he's going to make up for anything that I lack, anything that my weapons lack. There's an interesting parallel that we have in the New Testament. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons that we have, our weaponry, he's talking to Christians, this side of the cross... The weapons that we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. And that means Richard Dawkins. That means Bart Ehrman. That means the multiculturalists. That means the pluralists. That means the, 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 uh, the, the postmodernists of our world who say it's all relative. There is no absolute truth. The weapons that we have have divine power for the demolishing of strongholds. We demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive, this is where we do this to ourselves, every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Then it happened when the Philistine rose uh, and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. It sounds like he's holding back to you. I think David is quite confident that this is going to end poorly for the Philistine and well for the armies of Israel. He put in his, his hand into his bag. He took a stone from it and the stone sank into his forehead. You talk about a laser beam shot. Think about all the armaments. Goliath has a guy standing in front of him holding a shield. It's called the shield bearer or the armor bearer. You hear about him in ancient literature, including the Bible. Then he's got a breastplate and he's got these greaves on. He's got a helmet made of bronze. He has got the technologically cutting-edge, state-of-the-art warfare stuff uh, that, that, that they could throw at the ancient Israelites. And yet God laser-beamed that smooth stone from the brook Elah that David had just picked up. He didn't weigh it. He didn't file it off. He just, he, he cut it loose. And right in the forehead, perfect shot, front and center. And the giant fell to the ground. We're told in another text in the book of Judges about the tribe of Benjamin that they had 700 choice men that could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Again, I'm suggesting to you, Goliath didn't know it, 
And none of the guys back home knew it. Mrs. Goliath didn't know it. Mama Goliath didn't know it. Um, Somebody got so upset they broke the bowl. But um, David knew it. David knew it. God knew it. This guy didn't have a chance. He was not going home that day except in a body bag. The God of Israel. The God of Israel. You come out to me against me with sword and spear and shield, but I come out to you with the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies that you have taunted. This is, I think, the big picture of the whole battle, and that is verse 47. So that all this assembly may know that the Lord doesn't deliver by sword or spear, but the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. It's up to Him. We have to participate. We've got to sign on. We've got to obey. We've got to march when He says march. But He's the one who empowers. He's the one who protects. He's the one who brings ultimate victory. The battle is the Lord's. Um, I've got a few conclusions that I'd like to leave with you, if you don't mind. One is that the Scriptures can be trusted. It got the geography right. It got the technology right. Um, it got uh, the... Um, all of this stuff about representative uh, combat and where the cities were and a make-sense itinerary and uh, the scriptures can be trusted. Another is, it tells us about the nature of God. The, the God that we serve is, is bigger and stronger than any human technology or argument or um, uh, psychological warfare or big people or whatever. Um, uh, the the god of uh, the god of the bible is one to be reckoned with and um he is not going to share his glory with anybody else and so he's not going to make sure that people that are fighting for him have the cutting art uh, cutting edge technology and state of the art stuff like that he's going to make sure that we're always kind of in a one down position you may have noticed that before we're not the greatest we don't have the numbers on the rest of society we're not always on the cutting edge in terms of, uh, of technology or art or whatever. But God is going to make sure that he wins. And when he wins, when his people win, that, that make no mistake about it, it's not because we outsmarted them. It's not because we out-technologied them. It's not because we outnumbered them. It's because the God that we serve is greater than any other human force. He's not going to share his glory with them or us for that matter. The battle is the Lord's. A final thing is it it challenges us, this story challenges us to be certain kinds of people. That is, it wasn't included to satisfy our curiosity about ancient Israelite history, but it's revealing aspects about God and about the kind of character He wants built into us. That is, people who will trust His Word and people who will trust Him to come through and do what he says that um, he will do, and then we will arise. I'm not going to say you're going to be able to defeat the giants in your land. That's not really the point. But you will be able to rise up and with God's strength deal with anything this world throws at you and deal with it in a way that brings glory to the God of Israel, the God of the armies of Israel, through whose name the real victory comes.